Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Prime Minister Trudeau has announced the date that he'll be meeting with provincial and territorial leaders to discuss health care funding. What steps need to be solidified to meet Shadil? We'll get into that for you. Germany and the United States have agreed to send dozens of battle tanks to Ukraine to help with the invasion. Will this shift the conflict to a new confrontational level? And what are the results going to be when the Russians hear about this? And what is the state of Canada's economy in light of yesterday's interest rate hike? Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, retreat from the uh, Federal Liberal Caucus, and, and specifically, of course, the Cabinet, uh, is wrapping up in Hamilton after a number of days here. A lot of announcements, uh, some very favorable to Hamilton, others on national policy, uh, probably the most important of which is, of course, the announcement yesterday, the Premier uh, the Prime Minister is going to meet with the Premiers, rather, uh, and talk about a funding deal for health care, which has been on the table for quite some time. Global's Catherine Ward has some details for us. Premiers have been pushing for more funding as the pandemic put additional strains on the health care system, and hospitals have been pleading for more help. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said funding increases would come with strings attached. Canadians need to, need to see improvements, better results and outcomes, including timely access, access to family doctors no matter where you live, a strong and sustainable health workforce, access in a timely fashion to better mental health care, and access to digital health information that follows them to any health professional they see. Trudeau has invited the premiers to a working meeting in Ottawa, which is scheduled for February 7th. Catherine Ward, Global News. A pivotal announcement, and uh, we want to talk about the importance of that and, and what's going to happen going forward on that, and an assessment of what happened over the last couple of days with this uh, this retreat as well. And to talk about that, please to welcome back to the program, Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Mohammed, uh, good to have you with us again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on this snowy day. Yeah, no kidding. Let's uh, talk, uh, uh, first of all, about this health care announcement that, that he made. This has been a, a rather contentious issue for quite some time, of course. There's been a, a lot of uh, rhetoric back and forth between the premiers and the prime minister. Uh, it looks as if, I don't want to sound overly optimistic, as if they're, they're on the right path right now. How important is this meeting next week, and, and what do you expect to see come out of that meeting? Or in February, I'm sure. Yeah, so I mean, that meeting is to me obviously critical that, you know, at that point, you're more or less announcing what's already been sort of agreed on internally. You know, the finance ministers will, of, of all the promises and with, with the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Friedland, will all meet just before that to make sure like, hey, we're, we're, we're all square on the financing and the broad principles that we are going to agree to as part of this sort of health accord. Now, I don't, don't expect actual formal signing of deals and such on February 7th, it will be more an agreement saying, hey, yeah, we all agree. We are happy that this is, we're now moving forward into now the formal sort of deal signing with each province because the, as the Prime Minister has said, but each province has a very unique set of situations, issues, challenges, and capabilities that will be nuanced with what is agreed upon as part of the, the broader um, uh, components of the the new deal. So, you know, it'll take us right into like the medium long-term sort of trajectory of what the healthcare system should look like. So as much as this money will be there for, to help sort of alleviate certain short-term issues, there is also like the medium and long-term around data, around family doctor access and other things so to help sort of uh, prepare the healthcare system for the future. And I think that was one of the key elements, wasn't it? You and I talked about this a few weeks ago before they actually got down to this point where they're going to have this uh, this setup. 
Uh, and by the way, we should just remind our listeners that uh, the premiers have been asking for this for months now uh, to have a sit down, a face to face. And uh, obviously because of COVID and other things, that was impossible. But uh, it, it's going to happen, as we just mentioned, uh, in early February. But the idea that uh, the prime minister said yesterday that, that as you say, there are going to be variations on the theme. This is not a one size fits all policy, which is what they tried to do in the past. And I think that was one of the points of contention as far as the premiers were concerned. Yeah, you know, this is definitely not a one size fit. I mean, the political climate right now really is wouldn't really allow it. The, it's very polarized amongst each region of the country. Normally, you know, as many of your listeners may remember, it's always like the rest of Canada and then Quebec uh, would get sort of a, their own separate. And this time, you're going to get a lot of sort of situations where you're going to have multiple Quebecs. It won't be just the, the the singular. You know, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario will all presumably have a very unique set. Uh, but I mean, just uh, the federal government is going to look to how they negotiate the childcare deals as a as a sort of platform with which how to ensure that what they want is delivered with specific outcomes, a timeline, the milestones, so that it's not it's still not a here's a giant check and you figure it out. It's more like hey, like if you meet these markers, then this is how the funding is flowing, and this is what we'll fund towards. So. Uh, th- I think this will, will will probably still lead to a very timely negotiations after the fact. And I think a lot of provinces will be very hungry to get a deal uh, as soon as possible so they can be reflective in their upcoming spring budgets that they forecast for the next uh, few years. Quebec, uh, Premier will go, even with all of this on the table right now, said they're still not going to be supportive of it. It's, I. I mean, the skeptic in me says, like, they don't seem to like anything. They're like Mikey in that old serial commercial years ago. You know, my, you know, Legault doesn't like anything. He wants the money, but he still doesn't want that that responsibility of reporting. Uh, is is there any way to cut some sort of a deal uh, to try to bring them into the fold? Look, I think the the challenge to Quebec is always going to be that they just never like anything federal, nothing pan Canadian. They always want their own thing and, and to make everything more difficult. So. Uh, not shocking. I think all the negotiators are already, will already be prepared for that. But like any province that is negotiating sort of on these federal deals, if they're very late to, to, the, to the game and they're like last in line, they will have less leverage to actually argue. And the prime minister has even said it himself, like, look, if you're not willing to meet these sort of key markers to help transform the healthcare system, you will be left on the cold. And that's your job to explain to your electorate uh, how and why this deal didn't happen because there is a, you know, a structure and, and polling has suggested like we need to address a lot of these key areas. Uh, and Quebec is no different. So if, if Francois Legault prefers not to de- uh, negotiate, then that's a problem. Now, part of this is also political rhetoric. You know, Quebec will always need to do that. And, and Francois Legault panders to separatists. So this is him also entertaining his own base to make sure that he has everyone in line. So it's a bit of both. Uh, sort of angle that the, he's playing. I, I get that, and and we see that happen, and that's politics, right? Uh, you know, Jason Kenney and, and and Justin Trudeau were you know not friendly people. I don't think they ever exchanged Christmas cards. But Alberta had the good sense to sign on to the child care program because they saw the the financial benefit for it for, for both the provincial government and for the federal government, as did Saskatchewan and others. Uh, Legault seems to just be playing hardball on this. But uh, is there going to be resistance? Uh, let me use the example we just did of Alberta. Uh, Daniel Smith, now the premier. Uh, there's an election in that province this year. Uh, does she use uh, the prime minister and the federal government as the foil to simply say, you know, we're not doing this because I don't want to play ball with these guys? I, you know, it's it's a unique challenge that, that's happening on Alberta. 
they're all for sure. Daniel Smith will target Justin Trudeau as the um, opposition, so to speak, and tie you know Rachel Notley and ADP together, saying this is why we had to be careful. We'll have Ottawa encroachment and such. But her challenge is that healthcare is a very is a is the arguably the top issue in Alberta still, and she has not demonstrated any means which to fix it. All she sort of talked about is sort of very pandering on the right, completely on the right, where like anti-COVID measures and such. Like th- there isn't a lot of actual like, hey, how are we getting more doctors here? How are we addressing surgery backlogs? How are we addressing all these different structural issues? Uh, and she has to go to voters and explain, you know, also she had a budget surplus and has sh- nothing to show for it. So she will have a very difficult time and will have to find a, a means to actually secure this deal. And so that she can also go to her voters and say, look, I got the best deal for Alberta and we're going to fix healthcare." So I think that's where she likely will find more success as opposed to the alternative where it's like, I'm going to reject all this because the federal government is not good for us. How adamant and, and, and how strong is the federal government going to be on this? I'm asking you to do a little crystal balling here, I guess, Mohammed. Uh, but as you say, they control the purse strings. And, and you know, if, if people are in non-compliance, they have the ability and always have, I guess, had the ability to simply say, well, you're not getting the money. Uh, they did that with New Brunswick, of course, when New Brunswick uh, was not making uh, uh, abortion clinics uh, accessible to most of the, the people of that province. Uh, but if they do look at this bill and if they do get this deal signed, well, let's use the example of Ontario. Uh, you know, Doug Ford, of course, has talked about relying a lot more on private sector right now and directing some of the money to private sector for profit businesses. Uh, is that going to be an issue? I mean, I know the prime minister's initial assessment was it's innovative. Uh, but when push comes to shove and there's money on the table, are they simply going to say it's this way or no way? Look, I think the premiers have been trying that for months and months now, and it hasn't gone anywhere because that's what they were asking. No strings attached. Let us do what we want because we know best. But in reality, they weren't doing a good job in their own provinces, despite even having the surpluses to pay for a lot of this. So uh, they will still try. But I think what we are seeing right now and why this tone shift has taken place, that there is a general agreement or leading to a general formal agreement of the principles that we need to do all this in order to access this federal money. And so we will have to abide by and do it. And that's why you're seeing, and even Francis Legault, in his fairness, he did succumb to saying, you know what, we can talk about data sharing just before the holidays. He was advocating for that. Ford did the same thing where, yeah, we can talk about data sharing and surgery backlogs. Like they all were breaking rank and saying, look, you know what, you're not asking for the worst thing in the world. I think we can work on a deal. So I think you'll probably see less you know, resistance over the next couple of weeks and leading into that February 7th announcement uh, because a lot of that difficult negotiating has sort of been ironed out for the most part. I think right now what we're coming to is the money. So when these guys all get together in Ottawa, uh, the Prime Minister's already said he's he's not expecting any kind of an announcement. This is just a get-together. And as you've told us in the past, when there's a, a very serious negotiation like this going on, uh, it's it's the staff that do the, the, the heavy lifting here. They're the ones that are back and forth on the phones and the emails. Uh, it, you know, it's not, I know the premiers do talk about this, but, you know, the, the negotiation and the, and the back and forth happens at a lower level. Is, is this just a glorified photo op? Because they said there's no announcement coming out of this meeting. Uh, is it just a, an opportunity for these guys to get up there in front of each other and with the microphone and, and say, this is what I want? I think it's a little bit in between where it's, it, it will be 
it may not, it's not the announcement of like, hey, we have secured all deals. It would be more like, hey, we've all agreed on this framework. And then the next step will be to now formalize it with actual signing. So a bit of a photo op, but also a bit of like, we here are what we've agreed to. Uh, so that now everyone can understand. And then the photogram will also like, will state, here's what we're putting up for this. Uh, and a lot of that will, will lead into, so he can't really allude to what exactly, because I think there is going to be a critical meeting amongst finance ministers coming up before that, that will really solidify, okay, like we're in agreement now on the principles and now the money as well. Now we can announce it and have this like giant photo up that we are now able to address healthcare this new accord coming in uh, in due course. Maybe they've learned a lesson from history here, too. I mean, some of our listeners, I'm sure, would remember uh, the debate about uh, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and, and, this, and that's going back into the early 80s, I understand. Uh, but they showed those things live on TV, and it was a negotiation between the premiers, and it got ugly sometimes, uh, some of the comments back and forth between the premiers and the federal government. Uh, this seems to be a cleaner process where they're going to do all that stuff uh, before they even get in front of the cameras. And, and it, I'm not suggesting they're all going to be on the same page, but at least a lot of the acrimony is probably going to be gone by then. Yeah, a lot of it should be gone by then. And I would I would be surprised if, if it kind of veered any, in any sort of negative way because uh, there still needs to be formal negotiations after. Now, each... Each premier and, and the prime minister himself will will probably allude to saying, hey, like, you know, we're, we're excited by this and we're looking forward to formalizing this and, and making sure that we get the best deal for Saskatchewan, the best deal for Ontario, the best deal for Canada, the best deal for... Like, they'll, they'll see all that kind of rhetoric, which is all just political posturing and making sure you look good to your own electorate. electorate. So uh, that's the sort of tone you'll probably see. But I think you'll probably see a lot of uh, happy faces knowing that this is this is this will be near completion and a big marker for a number of these premiers who are heading into election year because healthcare is the number one issue across the country and basically in every province is also the number one issue or the second top issue. So it's also very helpful for a lot of these premiers that are going into an election year twenty twenty three, like Premier Smith, uh, to demonstrate a win of this magnitude. Well well let's see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Mohammed as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Mohammed Ali, of course, Senior Consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about new developments going on in Ukraine. Uh, the head of NATO says Ukrainian forces will be getting training on newly arriving battle tanks very soon. Tom Rivers has details. The big question is, can the tanks and newly trained crews be in place in time to counter a Russian spring offensive? NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg. Allies are extremely focused on the importance of speed of getting training and the actual deliver, uh, delivery of battle tanks as, as soon as quick as possible. One country, Germany, is more specific. It says training will start within days and it's on track to deliver battle tanks to Ukraine by the end of March, early April. Tom Rivers, ABC News at the Foreign Desk. Certainly good news for Ukraine, and I know President Zelensky is very, very excited about this and very thankful. Uh, but what about the North American component, and what about Canada, for that matter? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Thomas Hughes. Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Oh, thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be here. I, 
there's always a lot of talk behind closed doors and behind the scenes back and forth about this. Uh, Zelensky's been asking for these things for quite some time. Uh, the uh, holdup seemed to be, of course, especially when it came uh, to one particular kind of tank, the Leopard 2 tanks, uh, that Germany had to give them permission, and they would seem to be dragging their heels on that. Not only are they given permission, they're making a donation. Did that surprise you? Uh, the timing surprised me a, a little. Uh, I felt that if it was going to happen, it would have happened um, the week before, just after we had, had first had a conversation about this. Um, I, I, I felt like it was it was likely to reach this particular conclusion. They were likely to give the green light at, at some point, but I thought that as it hadn't happened, it would it would take us a, a little bit longer to get to that point. Um, so I, I think it was really interesting to see the the interview. Um, that Zelensky was given when essentially he received the news and, and it seemed to be a, a surprise to him, uh, a, a happy surprise from him, his perspective that, that Germany had had changed changed track and uh, given the, the green light uh, to this. And it is, as you suggested for Ukraine, a, a very, very welcome uh, development and Germany has has fallen into line with with what its allies were, were also hoping it would do, which is a really important point for the, the, the future of that uh, alliance. I, I was surprised that, uh, yeah, the, again, the unanimity and, and you know of what's happening and, and to bring Germany on board. I mean, they were a little hesitant to get into the, uh, the sanctions against Russia too, but they eventually did. And, and they're always concerned about paying a price for that. And I know that, uh, well, the Ukraines already have, since that announcement was made, of course, mm -hmm. they have a lot more missile attacks on some of the major cities. Uh, talk to me about the North American component. And let's, let's start with our friends south of the border. They've always supported this idea of tanks, and, and apparently they're going to be sending about 31 of their Abrams tanks. They, they don't have the tanks but the abrams tanks and they're gonna to have to train because i guess the ukrainian forces have no idea how to run these things how how much time is that going to take so it's a, it, giving an absolute is a is a difficult question to answer and i think it's also actually going to depend on on what the ukrainians want at this point and before i come to that directly i think i i think it's also important to say yes germany has appeared to be dragging its feet in in a lot of components of this but they have also given an awful lot of material support to ukraine yeah uh, it just felt like the the, the tanks uh, for for some reason to uh, Germany, reason uh, is understandable. Even if we don't agree with it, they were reluctant to take this particular step. They saw it as a, as a different track uh, of the conflict, which personally I don't particularly agree with. But but that was their their point there. But so um, the question around the, the Abrams tanks is a really interesting one because. As the, the name implies, they are different to the, to the Leopard 2. There are some, um, subtle differences and some fairly significant differences in, in terms of how they work and particularly in terms of how to maintain them. The biggest is simply that the, the engine, uh, that they use is, is completely different and that the fuel that they will be consuming is, is significantly higher than the Leopard. So part of the, the, the question for Ukraine here, is is it going to be uh, more efficient for them to uh, concentrate fully on the Leopard 2 tanks and get them onto the battlefield as soon as they possibly can, or to try and take a, a multi-tracked approach and um, work with the, the Abrams at the same time? My inclination will be that um, the key here was for America to confirm that it was sending these tanks, to confirm that it was essentially mirroring what Germany uh, was doing that they were both going to be supplying these tanks to tie them together in this sort of decision making process. And that's the, the, the primary significance over and above when these tanks will actually arrive in, in Ukraine. Uh, obviously it is rather more difficult to, to, um, 
take a tank from this side of the Atlantic and, and put it into Ukraine than it is to take a tank from Poland or from Germany to get into Ukraine, just a function of, of distance. Um, so I, I think it may take us a little longer to see those Abrams tanks uh, actually in Europe um, uh, or in Ukrainian hands in Europe, let alone being being used on the battlefield. So it, the decision for the US to send these tanks is important. I have no doubt that if these, if and when these tanks uh, appear on the battlefield in Ukraine, that they will make a difference. Um, but for me, I think the significance of this primarily uh, in the near term was freeing up uh, the decision to send those those leopards uh, to to Ukraine. I, I want to get to the Canadian situation in about mm. ten seconds here, but your point's well taken. It's one thing to you know put a bunch of these things on a train from Germany or from Poland and, and get them over there uh, across the ocean. Uh, you you can't put fifteen tanks. Uh, on a you know an airplane carrier and just say here you are guys it's going to take some time to get them over there isn't it yeah absolutely and uh, that will also be uh, part of a function of uh, planning that has already happened uh, we we don't know uh, for the us whether they had already I, I mean i would suspect that they already had a plan for uh, transferring these tanks to europe uh, how quickly they put that that plan into into place at uh, remains to be seen. And again, alongside that, uh, who's going to be doing the training uh, on on these tanks? Um, they're also not just going to have to put the 31 tanks on a, a, a ship to get them across. Um, they are going to have to take um, spares uh, and extra parts as well. So there is a, a significant logistical chain that goes alongside um, supplying these sorts of weapons. And that is absolutely true for the Leopard tanks as well. It's not just a case of, 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 of putting the tanks uh, on a transporter and then giving them to Ukraine and, and providing some training. It's, it also is going to be important to provide um, spare parts and all of the supporting equipment that goes alongside maintaining um, these, sorts of, these sorts of weapons. All right. In your opinion, why is Canada not part of this announcement? You know, they, they've not said no. I mean, you know, the initial reason was, well, we have to get permission from Germany. They've got that now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the yeah. Canadian military says, look, they've got 122 of these things in their arsenal here. And the the, the word I heard yesterday was they're, they're in pretty good shape. I mean, they may need a little tweaking here and there. Uh, but why not an announcement? And it, it, I assume they're going to do this at some point, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I, so my my inclination on this uh, is is again to be careful not to read too much into it. I think uh, exactly as you say that that Canada will be uh, providing um, Leopard two tanks at some point. Um, I think that they will be under pressure to do so because um, now, as, as you said, Germany gave the green light. That had been the the rationale for not sending them before. But I think there's there's questions over logistics and there's questions over how many tanks um, Canada is prepared to take from its arsenal and, and provide to Ukraine. The noises yesterday that, that I'd heard suggested that um, there was a, a keen, a really keen awareness that Ukraine are the, the country who need to use these tanks right now. Canada doesn't, but it does raise questions about how many tanks we in Canada want to maintain as, as part of our fighting force. How many can we send across? Uh, and again, I think it's it's part of that logistics. How are we going to get them uh, to Europe? That That's a, a conversation that Canada needs to have. Is it going to um, do a, a bulk transfer with, with uh, the, the Abrams at the same time? Um, are they going to be doing it uh, them, themselves? Whether um, the, the 
a, the leopard tanks that Canada would be sending across would be um, put in conjunction with the European tanks uh, or whether they're going to be part of a separate batch. All of those sorts of logistical questions um they sound very simple. Um, you know, just create a Gantt chart and off you go. But it, it is a really difficult process. So my my impression is that, that Canada is probably simply waiting until it has a little more surety around how it's going to deliver these tanks and how many it's going to deliver so that they can give that sort of press briefing. Because otherwise, I think it would be, I don't want to say embarrassing, but it, it looks a little bit strange if the, the announcement is, yeah, okay, we're going to send some Leopard 2 tanks. And then the obvious question is, okay, how many and when? So, well, we don't really, we haven't got that answer yet. It, it becomes a slightly strange press briefing. So my suspicion is those conversations have been ongoing, that they are happening right now, uh, and they're, they're ironing out those kinks so that they, they can um, present a coherent plan of, of, of action. And, and timing is of the essence. I know here we are, not you know, not even mm. into February yet, and, and uh, they're talking about the concern about a spring offensive here. Uh, yeah. But but it's as you mentioned, Thomas, it's going to take a long time for them to get over there and then be trained. And Zelensky wants them on the battlefield before this. In other words, he's uh, as we've seen over the last few months, wants to be proactive, not reactive to the Russians. For, for sure, uh, and from from that battlefield perspective, the sooner these tanks can get onto the to the battlefield, the the better. Uh, the the spring offensive um, language has uh, it's it's so often used. I, I think in I think it seems fairly likely that that Russia will be uh, attempting some form of offensive action. Um, again, I mean they haven't stopped uh, offensive action, uh, particularly around Bakhmut. Uh, in in recent months, that they they have been um, trying to attack um, uh, Ukraine over the past few months. But uh, as the weather changes, uh, as the terrain becomes potentially more accessible, then it, it does provide more of an opportunity for Ukraine for for Russia to mount that that offensive. Exactly. Uh, well, we'll have to leave it there for now. We're just about out okay. of time on this one, but uh, hopefully that announcement's coming sooner than later, and I'm sure Absolutely. we'll talk about it then. Absolutely, Thomas. Thank you so much for this. Always appreciate our no, conversations. Good to speak to you. Bye for now. Take care. Thomas Hughes uh, from the Canadian Defense and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're uh, all hurting these days. I mean, the numbers tell a story. Uh, we talked about the uh, the bank rate. And we're going to get into that in further detail in just a couple of seconds here. Uh, but the impact it's having on day-to-day lives, of course, has been monumental in many people's case. And uh, according to a new Ipsos poll, a number of Canadians say they're just flat out of cash. Global's Jeff Smith has some details on that report. A new Ipsos poll for Global News finds 22% of Canadians completely unable to pay more for household necessities. That is up three points from October. And it rises to 25% in Ontario and Quebec and 35% for people with a household income under 40000 On top of that, another 32% say they would have to make major changes to their spending to absorb increased costs. That is up two points. Just over half say they might not have enough money to feed their family, and a majority say they might not be able to afford gasoline. Jeff Smith, Global News. Uh, we're all suffering because of this in varying degrees, as Jeff mentioned in that report. Uh, so government policy comes into play. Bank of Canada policy comes into play. And, of course, we got news uh, about the, the bank's uh, approach to this with the rising interest rates and yet another hike yesterday. Joining us to talk about this is uh, the leader of the opposition, of course, the leader of the federal Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Polyev, uh, good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you very much, Mr. Kelly. Great to be with you. 
Let's talk a little bit about uh, what we heard yesterday. And and uh, I, I watched part of your uh, your presser with the, the media yesterday after the, the Bank of Canada announcement. And as we just heard in that report there, I mean, a lot of us are hurting right now. Uh, I've got a lot of concern and a lot of questions about the Bank of Canada policy here uh, and the interest rate increases that they have. I, I, I disagree with a lot of this philosophically. But in your comments yesterday, uh, you were referring to this as, as, as Prime Minister Trudeau decided to raise uh, the, the bank rate. Uh, and you and I both know that, that prime ministers, no prime minister, uh, has that power. They don't raise interest rates, bank rates. That's done by the Bank of Canada. Why, why would you make that connection? Well, actually, you're wrong. Um, the truth is that the prime minister does drive up interest rates when he runs deficits. That's not my opinion. That's not, That's but he's not making the if announcement. I, if, what if you're I saying, said, Mr. Polyev, you're conf- sorry, just, just a second. Question. No, don't, don't, don't disrespect your, your, your listeners by interrupting me and preventing me from speaking. Well, when so you I'm say gonna, something I'm that's incorrect, though, Mr. Polyev, you what you're you saying is the Bank of Canada you may react to uh, federal policy, but they don't do it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. The Prime Minister did, and that's what I said. So thank you for for, for agreeing with me on that. The Prime Minister that's not what I said either. Though. A massive deficit, a massive deficit, half a tri- trillion dollars of deficits. That bids up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest we pay. Now, the media can try to pr- protect him from that because he's bailing them out. But the reality is that's what's driving interest rates up, and that's what's driving uh, uh, in- in- inflation up. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Mark Carney, a potential future liberal leader, who said that inflation is now a domestic phenomenon. Listen to the current governor of the Bank of Canada, who said that interest rates are going up because of the federal deficit. This is a relationship that has been established by decades, if not centuries, of economic scholarship. So when I stated that the prime minister is driving up interest rates, I was literally accurate, and it is exactly true, and no amount of um, liberal media trying to protect him because he's bailing them out will change that. But listen, you know, and this is one of the things that you've been accused of in the past, and I know you don't have a high opinion of the media, uh, especially people that want to you know, hold your feet to the fire on some key issues. But the reality is, is you also know that inflation is not a Canadian problem. It's an international problem. It's higher in the, in the UK right now. Is that Justin Trudeau's fault? It's higher in the United States right now. How we deal with it is something that we need to discuss and debate. But to suggest that, that it's being caused by, by this particular government, uh, I think is, is really conflating a couple of the facts here. And when you confuse people like that, uh, it's, it's counterproductive, Mr. Polly. We're not going to get anything done here if all we're going to do is point fingers and use misinformation. Well, then you shouldn't use misinformation, sir. You clearly don't know the facts. The reality is that... These I just stated the facts. I'll, I'll state the facts for you. I don't put political spin on it, and I, I grant you well, that. You but just did. You just did. You just did. So let me answer your, 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 your question. You said, is Trudeau to blame for inflation in the States or, or Britain? Of course not. The incompetent government policies of those governments are to blame for it. If you want to know what the alternative is, look at Switzerland which is smack dab in the middle of Europe, and they have almost no inflation. Why? They're not running monster deficits and printing money to pay for it. Rather, they're running balanced budgets, and they're maintaining a consistent money supply. Why is it that they have low inflation when Europe has high inflation? Because they're not printing money. Furthermore, to blame inflation on global phenomenon is just counterfactual. We have less than less than 0.3 percent of our trade is we, our, of our economy is trade with your, with um, Ukraine and Russia. 
And the things that those two countries export are things we already have here in Canada. Furthermore, there was a war in Ukraine when Prime Minister Harper was Prime Minister, and we did not have inflation. There were also wars in the Middle East which produced petroleum, and we did not have inflation. That's because we weren't printing money to pay for out-of-control deficits. We know this is true because not only am I saying that, in, that our Trudeau's deficits are driving up interest rates and, infl and inflation, so is the governor of the Bank of Canada, so is Bill Morneau, Justin Trudeau's former finance minister, and so is Mark Carney, the potentially future liberal leader. So when liberals are, are now saying it, I think some in the media should stop trying to cover up for Justin Trudeau and protect him from accountability. Well, I don't think that I, I disagree with your assertion there and, you, and your characterization of that. We're just trying to act. Look, we do the same thing to the prime minister, too. I've, I've got a lot of problem with a lot of the policies this government has enacted in the last little while. You know, I, I, I think they went too long with some of the COVID relief policies, and that was detrimental. And I know where they're going on this, and I don't like it when governments go into deficit. I mean, you know, the Harper government went into deficit after 11 years of government surpluses, and the prime minister took over. It only took them one year to do that. And, I, and you know something, Mr. Polyev? I don't totally blame him for that. Because he was faced with a recession. He didn't have inflation, but he was faced with a, a, a major recession. Uh, and he responded to it. And he, he did something that I don't think he even felt comfortable with, is he helped bail out the auto industry here. And, and God knows what would have happened if he hadn't done that. It's probably against his better judgment, but it was something he had to do, and it worked. Yeah, but here's the, two, here's the difference. Harper's deficit was the smallest in the G7. Harper, uh, Truro's is one of the biggest. Harper left office with a debt-to-GDP ratio identical to what he inherited, despite the monstrous global recession that came from outside of the country. Trudeau, by contrast, has more than doubled our national debt. Trudeau has added more debt than all previous prime ministers combined. And that is why we have the inflation that we have today. We have, he, he has bid up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest we pay. And now, he and his NDP coalition partners want to triple the carbon tax to make it worse still. I am the only leader who's proposing to cap government spending by finding a dollar of savings for every dollar of new spending, by eliminating the waste and mismanagement, firing the high-priced consultants that now consume $15 billion or $1,000 for every family in this country. Those, the decision to spend to waste money like that had nothing to do with COVID. It was not forced on Trudeau. He made the decision to waste our money in this way. And that is why a quarter of Canadians say they're out of money and half of Canadians worry they can't feed themselves. Uh, are you suggesting that, that COVID uh, it did not have any impact at all? This was just simply government decisions and COVID was not a factor? Of course it was a factor, but it doesn't explain the entire deficit. And don't take my word for it. Take Justin Trudeau's own parliamentary budget officer who said 40% of all of the new spending in the last two years was unrelated to COVID. COVID didn't force him to pay the CERB to people who had quit their jobs or to keep paying paid people not to work when there was a million vacant jobs or to send CERB checks to prisoners or to send wage subsidies to companies that were so rich that they were able to pay out bonuses and dividends to their executives and their shareholders, COVID didn't. But but sir, but sir, Mr. Polyev, to your to your point, CERB was a response to COVID. Now, yeah, now we can argue whether or not whether or not it was effective, and we can argue about how the program was rolled out. But it was a response to COVID. There were people that were in dire financial circumstance then, and I, I get I that. I I, 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 I supported I, that. 
I know, and 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 we can talk about the rollout of it, and and maybe that that you know I I didn't like the fact that the you know the initial thing was uh, just ask for it and you'll get it, and we'll we'll sift out who should have got it and who shouldn't have. Uh, I think that was a bad move, and it's costing us a lot of money. So let's talk about that. But the response to the pandemic, nobody has ever in in our lifetimes has ever had to deal with a pandemic before, and yeah, they got some stuff wrong, but but to suggest that you know this was done in in an arbitrary fashion, I think is incorrect. Well, then we'll have to disagree. I supported giving people income replacement when they lost their jobs because of COVID. I did not support continuing to pay it out when there was a million vacant jobs or to pay, to pay it out to high school students who hadn't lost any money or to pay it out to prisoners or to pay it out to dead people. Uh, and according to the our Auditor General, who Trudeau appointed, by the way, $4 billion of, le- uh, of the money was completely wasted. $30 billion of the spending is highly suspect. He didn't need to give $54 million to an arrive can app that could have cost $300,000. We now know that. And that's under investigation that, now. It is. We now know there were middlemen that were making $1,000 a day, not to work, but to take the contract and hand it off to another corporation. We now know that McKinsey has got a hundred, a liberal linked, uh, Trudeau friendly consulting firm has got a hundred million dollars. Uh, in contracts, that compares to two million under the previous Harper government. So it's a fifty-fold. Listen, yeah, but, but Mr. Polly, have you been in politics sorry, a long time? Sorry, sorry. Any government COVID that's in charge hires friendly consulting agencies, and they oh. spend too much money on them. That's that's a fact. Uh, I know your time is tight. I got to ask you. You've had some some harsh words for the of uh, the Bank of Canada for the, the governor, uh, Tip Macklin, their policy as well. Under your administration, if you become prime minister, uh, do you eliminate the Bank of Canada? Do you fire the Bank of Canada president? Do you want somebody in there who's more convenient or conducive with your policies? What would you do? Very simple. As I've said publicly, I'd replace him with someone who would hit the 2% inflation target. The problem with the current governor is that he abandoned his mandate of keeping inflation at 2% in favor of printing $400 billion of cash. That's a 20% increase in the money supply, which is a direct, which I warned him would lead to inflation. He then said, no, there will be no inflation and there will be no rate hikes. And then the exact opposite of what he said occurred. And that is the fact that he served Justin Trudeau's irresponsible spending has led to the problems we have today. Now, I will put in place someone who's independent for me and will do one job, keep inflation at 2% so that Canadians can afford to eat, heat, and house themselves. Well, I will agree with you on one thing. I know your time is tight, that uh, politicians make lousy prognosticators. Uh, I can still remember in 2009 having Finance Minister Jim Flaherty on the program where he guaranteed there's not going to be a, an economic downturn, there's not going to be a recession, and that was at six weeks later. So it sometimes it comes at you, and uh, it depends how governments respond. Sir, I thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, and I'm Hopefully, we will uh, talk again soon down the road. Thank you, sir. Bye now. Pierre Polyev, leader of the uh, Conservative Party and, of course, opposition leader in the parliament. Uh, and, and listen, I, I get that. If, if Whatever your political stripe might be, you're going to agree or disagree with some of these things. But when you, you use misinformation or conflate facts to try to confuse people, uh, it doesn't help the discussion. It doesn't help the debate. I mean, if, if you hate this government, it makes you hate them more, but it's not going to get us any solutions. And, and you know, we pay these guys to work to find solutions. If it's all going to be just finger pointing back and forth and, and use half facts or misinformation information to try to get things you're making a bad situation worse and yeah i get it they're all guilty of it at some time or another and they're all guilty of political spin they pay a lot of people on all three parties 
uh, four parties, I guess, a lot of money to do that spin, to make it look like the other guys all are dumb and, and they're the only ones with the answers. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is I'm, I'm not suggesting everybody hold arms and just say, let's all get together here. Uh, but you've got to deal with facts here, okay, and, and not political spin. And, and I think that's where we are right now. We're spinning our wheels because of that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.